Are you an overachiever? If all you do is win, win-win, no matter what, and if you've got money or some other benchmark of success on your mind and you can never get enough, and if for whatever reason, every time you step up in the building and everybody's hands go up, please raise your hands. And uh, make them stay there. Make them stay there. And if you feel so inclined, up, down, up, down, up, down. My name is Hamza, and I have some advice for all you overachievers in the audience, all right? Stop. I mean it. I'm serious. Being an overachiever is overrated, it's counterproductive, and if you haven't already, you are going to hurt yourself in the process. I need you to trust me. I'm a recovering overachiever myself. I'm a full one year sober, actually. There used to be a time in my life where I would enjoy the moniker of a robot, of a machine, of a cyborg. When people would describe me as such, it was a badge of honor. It would make my circuits tingle. I was a human doing. I prided myself on sheer output. I would burn the midnight oil. I would burn the candle on both ends. I would fire on all cannons. I was on fire. And 2014 was an exceptional year for me. That year, I accomplished more than I ever thought I could. I ran two simultaneous agencies. I wrote, I taught, I spoke. I did all of these things for a living at the same time. And that year, in the summer, I told myself at the end of the year, I would take an epic vacation because I needed it. I could see the signs. I could see the wear and tear. I said I would go hard for the next six months, and in December, I would take off. Now, here's the thing about being an overachiever. It doesn't just stop in the professional, you overachieve even when it comes to leisure. Look at this ridiculous itinerary. I kid you not. Toronto to New York, New York to Milan, Milan to Prague, Prague to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur. I have the ticket stubs to prove it. My Airbnbs were booked. I had 10 things I wanted to do in each city. I was gonna jam pack this trip with more things to do. And on top of that, I was somehow gonna write a book called Getting More Things Done. I know, I know. Now, middle of December, it's time to go. My bags are packed. I've called everyone I needed to call. I'm ready to leave. And then this happens. Cold feet. Suddenly, my head, my heart, my body are completely out of sync. I'm sitting there with my boarding pass printed in hand stuffing the last few things into my bags. And I look at the clock, and there's two hours to go. I can still make it. I drag my feet, I've got one hour to go. Maybe if I hop in the cab and book it, I can still make it. Half an hour to go. Maybe Home Alone style, I could run right to the terminal and grease the attendant and get in. Didn't happen. Five, four, three, two, one. I watched the clock count down, and that flight left. I didn't go on the trip. I didn't go on the trip, and I could not, for the life of me, understand why. So for the next 30 days, I had to ask myself some really tough questions. Because I was mad, I was sad, I was resentful, I was confused, I was ashamed. I felt this cocktail of emotions that I had never felt before. What happened? What the hell happened? 
Why did this happen? Something wrong with me? How could I have prevented this? How didn't I see this coming? Was this inevitable? And am I alone? And so I spent the next 30 days doing some research. While at home, I looked up the term burnout. Now, I had heard of burnout before. I've heard it used in different contexts. I never wrapped my head around what burnout actually meant. And then I discovered the 12 stages of burnout by Herbert Freudenberger and Gail North. And once it was visualized for me as such, it completely reframed the way that I saw myself in the context of my work, my success, and ultimately my happiness. It always starts out the same. The compulsion to prove yourself. Came up, that's all me. No help, that's all me. All me for real. Me against the world. I'm going to hustle hard. I have so much to prove. And that leads perfectly into working harder. The 9 to 5 becomes the 9 to 7, becomes the 9 to 9. And before you know it, you're neglecting all of your needs. Your sleep, your food, your family, your friends. The things that are supposed to give you the energy to work hard, you are now sacrificing for short-term gain. And this is where things start to get ugly. After this stage, you start to displace conflicts. Hamza, we have to talk right now. Not right now, I've got too much on the go. Hamza, but we really, really need to talk. I can't. I can't talk about this right now. And then you start to revise your values. The things that are supposed to be the foundations of your person, the values, the attributes, the beliefs that you hold dear, suddenly become malleable. You know, you start off every day with a finite amount of willpower. And with every decision you make during that day, some of that willpower is eroded. This is a concept known as ego depletion. Now imagine being in a state of ego depletion perpetually. And then you start to deny the problems that you're having. Hamza, your work is suffering. No, it's not. What are you talking about? Hamza, you're not pulling your weight. Yes, I am. People become antagonistic to you. And then you begin to withdraw naturally. You pull away from work. You pull away from your family. You pull away from your friends. And before you know it, a certain randomness begins to creep into your life. You start drinking, maybe. You start smoking, maybe. Maybe not. Things that you didn't think you would do, you're certainly starting to exhibit now. You're starting to do things that people are noticing as odd. And then you begin to diminish and devalue the role of people in your lives. Your coworkers, your family, your friends are less than humans now. They're just these nagging voices in your life that you want to get away from. Nobody's good enough. And then comes the inner emptiness. Everybody's got goals, their own definitions of success. For the most part, you're able to visualize them, but when you're in this stage, stage 10, those goals become obscure. You don't know where you're going, you don't know where you are. You begin to question everything. And then comes the depression. This is different than sadness. This is a deep, dark, pinging, throbbing pain, a hollowness, an emptiness, a perpetual haze over your life. And before you know it, you're burnt out. Physically, mentally, and emotionally, you're gone. It hurts. It's embarrassing, especially if you're an overachiever like me. Now here's the thing, in seeing the visualization of the 12 stages of burnout, I realized that this wasn't my first rodeo. I had been here before in different degrees. I had flirted, flirted with burnout at almost every professional milestone in my career. 
First, as a student, right here, like a lot of the students in this room, I wasn't satisfied with simply one student organization. I threw myself a 10. Didn't just take four courses. I maxed out. I took seven. I took eight. I threw myself at my academics, at my extracurriculars. I tried to cram in as many lifetimes as possible into a singular lifespan. And I'm never going to be able to live down the manifestation of this burnout. It was two weeks before a major conference, and I was a publications manager. I was responsible for turning in print materials. And two weeks before, I just wasn't in the right headspace. Didn't have the work done. I was too embarrassed to tell people about it. And so what did I do? I pulled out. I let my team down. And I've never been able to reconcile with those negative feelings. And it happened again as an intern. I was working at a record label, and I was so eager to please my boss. I would work 15-hour workdays. And then after that, I would go help my boss at shows. And there was one particular stretch of 72 hours where I might have slept maybe three, four hours. I woke up at the end of this bender to the rapping of the door in the office bathroom. I was passed out in the office bathroom for eight hours. Deeply embarrassing, deeply shameful. Just not me, not the brand, not who I am. And it continued to happen. It happened to me as an employee. It happened to me as a founder. I was predisposed to burning out. Something had to change. So I needed to look at the root cause of my burnout. And I discovered that I had a very unhealthy relationship with stress. Now, we're going to define stress as the result produced when a structure, system, or organism is acted upon by forces that disrupt equilibrium or produce strain. I had an unhealthy relationship with stress. But I wasn't alone. We are arguably in the golden age of stress. This is possibly the most stressful we have ever been as a species. In fact, 69% of employees reported that work was a significant source of stress for them. We all feel this relentless pressure to perform. And there's multiple stressors that contribute to this feeling. The fear of job redundancy, layoffs, increased demands for overtime. But it's not just affecting us personally, it's affecting the entire economy. We're losing $300 billion a year in lost productivity caused by absenteeism, turnover, and healthcare expenditures. That also include death. I kid you not. The Japanese call it haroshi, the Chinese call it guolaosi. These words literally mean death by work. Death by work. Take that in. 1,600 people in China every day die from work. I'm not talking about laboring in the fields. I'm not talking about working in a factory. I'm talking about sitting behind a desk, staring at a screen for upwards of 10, 12, 15 hours a day, dying because of hemorrhage, internal failures, seizures. It's brutal. And the kicker, the most stressed of this multi-generational workforce, me. Millennials, a lot of you in the audience today. Now, I had to dive even deeper. Why was I so predisposed to stress? Why was I so predisposed to burnout? 50% of it was external, factors outside of my control. First-generation student from a lower-middle-class family and a racialized minority. My father wanted me to fit conveniently inside the career trinity. Doctor, lawyer, engineer. You can imagine his dismay when I said, I want to be a marketer. My back was against the wall, and I had more to prove from the jump. 
But then the other 50% was me indulging in these feelings. I began to like being an overachiever. The dopamine release was, in was intense. With every number I put on the board, every achievement, I built a certain momentum and I began to relate to quotes like this from Mr. Kobe Bryant. To think of me as a person that overachieved, that would mean a lot to me. That means I put a lot of work in, <clears throat> except in the last two years of my career, and squeeze every ounce of juice out of this orange that I could. And then I began to see it. I saw it clearly. In December of 2014, while I was recovering from burnout, I saw that every single day, for the last however many years I'd been working and studying, I was gambling. I was gambling with my health and my well-being. I wanted success however I defined it, and success requires effort. Effort induces stress, and unregulated stress can lead to burnout. Now, some of the variables over here were never going to change. I still had a lot to accomplish. But maybe, just maybe, I could change my response to stress. And so I applied a simple risk assessment framework to, the to this problem. Could I reduce the impact of stress, and could I reduce the probability of stress? And I looked at the 12 stages of burnout again. Where did things start to get ugly for me? Stage four. In fact, I was at my most productive when I was in the first two stages, and I could sustainably operate within them. Every now and then I had to dip into stage three. But as soon as I touched stage four, that's when I went all the way down the dark hole of burnout. Dare to know this. You can avoid burnout. You can make the transition from overachiever to high performer and have all of the benefits of being an overachiever without all of the downside. It's going to require you to make the transition and develop a state of productive anxiety. Now, special cloth alert. I'm going to give you some major keys. I'm going to give you some major keys. I'm not going to leave you hanging, I promise. The first thing you need to do is to unlearn stress in its entirety and regain control of the situation. Unlearn stress and consider this. The reason why you get up out of bed every morning, according to Thomas Hobbes, the engine of the human is appetite and aversion. We're drawn to things and we're repelled from things. And what are we repelled from? Pain, hurt, stress. If I asked you, do you want tomorrow to be a stressful day, everyone in here is going to say, hell no. But according to Dr. Kelly McGonigal, author of The Upside of Stress, there's two types of stress. There's good stress and there's bad stress. In fact, simply reframing a stressful situation as one in which you're experiencing good stress is enough to change your mood and your opinion and your attitude in that moment. Instead of looking at stress as what we defined it as above, maybe it's time to look at stress as this, a measurement of how engaged you are with the things that bring love and growth into your life. Another one. <laughs> Major key number two, become a high performer and reduce the probability of stressful situations in your life. Now, some stress is inevitable. Maybe you can call it good stress, maybe some of it is bad, but overall, you can reduce the probability of it happening. If you're not familiar with the Icarus myth, let me give you the SparkNotes version. Daedalus and his son Icarus are trapped on the island of Crete. Now, in order to escape, they're surrounded by water. Daedalus builds two contraptions, two sets of wings, made of wood, wax, and feathers. 
They fly out, and Daedalus tells Icarus, don't fly too low, because if you get close enough to the ocean, the foam and the mist is going to make your wings soggy, and you'll sink to your death. At the same time, don't fly too high, because what's going to happen? The wings are going to burn. They're going to melt, they're going to fall off, and you'll die. So they begin to fly, they find a nice altitude, and what does Icarus do? He gets confident, he gets cocky. He flies too high, the wings melt, they burn, and he plummets to his death. Daedalus, on the other hand, makes it all the way. Like Daedalus, I want you to find a new altitude. Find that perfect space, find that sweet spot of productive anxiety. For me, it was the first three stages, for you it could be different. Whatever it is, it's going to keep you in perpetual productivity with a little bit of anxiety. Another one. Major key number three. Reduce the impact of stress. A year and a half ago, a couple of friends and I got together and we wrote a blog. We produced a blog called Year One. And what we did is we reverse engineered the careers of 175 people who we deemed to be extremely successful. Athletes, politicians, artists, activists, you name it. And we distilled their careers down to a very early point in their lives to hone in on one particular attribute, something that has guaranteed them lasting success. And overwhelmingly, we found that one value gave the most guarantee of lasting success. Resilience. Resilience is your ability to adapt to stress. Now, how do you develop resilience? The Greeks had a solution for this as well. Ormesis. Ormesis describes the process by which you consume a small amount of poison, which is otherwise lethal for you and could kill you in a full dose, in small administered doses. And doing so actually builds up your tolerance to that very toxin. How do you manifest this now as a human being? Instead of running and dashing and flying and bounding towards your comfort zone and outside of it, take baby steps. Do something every day that scares you. Step outside of your comfort zone gradually. Because burnout occurs when you're continuously far beyond your comfort zone. That's a high-risk activity. When you are an overachiever, you are always engaging in high-risk activity. And there's diminishing returns. What you really want to do is remain slightly uncomfortable all the time. And thereby, recentering your risk factor. Initially, you'll have moderate risk because you've diminished and reduced the probability and the impact of stress. And over time, as you build up more resilience, as you continue to relearn stress, as you continue to make that transition from overachiever to high performer, you will gradually move back to a place where eventually, hopefully, stress in your life is rare and trivial. Now, this is the trip I'm taking. One leg short, I told myself, Let's take it easy. Let's not go as hard as we did last time. Not a lot planned, to be honest. I'm still going to be doing some of the things that I wanted to do in the previous trip. But for the most part, I'm going to relax. I'm going to recharge. I'm going to restore. Because I've made the transition from human doing back to human being. And that came from my rethinking, at a very comprehensive level, burnout. Burn out. Just look at that word. Take that in. Burn out. It's not the fire that's the problem. It's the absence of the fire that's the issue. The fire, the symbol, the metaphor for passion, for desire, for action, for activity, for movement, for fuel, 
Once that's extinguished, that's the real problem. So if you're going to take anything away from this, it's simply burn bright, not out. Thank you.